0: Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. Our guests today are legendary Mr. Charlie Brown and his husband, Fred Wise. So welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you. I'm excited. Me too. It's not every day that you get to interview somebody who has been uh, the star of the stage for almost five decades. So, that's quite an honor. You have quite a quite a number of stories to tell, I'm sure. I do, that's, what I that's why my name of my book that I'm writing is gonna be called Tale of the Bitch. Tales <laughs> of the Bitch. Now, I'm sure when you first started, you were not the bitch of the South. In fact, um, you mentioned to me that the first bar you wanted to talk about was the first bar where you performed in drag which was in Nashville. Uh, The bar was called Watch Your Hat and Coat Saloon. That's true. It opened in 1970 on Second Avenue and had a very, very brief exposure as a mainstream tourist bar before they realized that that was not gonna work. And um, one of the owners, Jerry Peake, who is still around and kicking and has great stories to tell, Went to Indianapolis, I believe, and saw some drag shows there. And he came back to Nashville and said, "That's what we need to do with the Watcher Hat and Coat Saloon." So by 1971, it had transitioned from a mainstream country western bar into a drag bar. That's that's right, and that's right after that
1: period started. I was I was living in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, working at a Hilton Inn. And uh, one of the girls I worked with went to a, a fortune teller. She said, you need to go with me. And so I went. And before I said anything to her, she looked, ripped the cards up and looked at me. And she said, you're the third sex. She knew I was gay. And she said, your future waits for you in Nashville, Tennessee. You're going to be going home. There was no way she knew that. And in the next couple weeks, she would, we would talk on the phone and she would tell me about I needed to go back to Nashville. And so the day I pulled into Nashville and was staying with my friends I was going to stay with, they said, get dressed, we're going to a drag show. But that night, they advertised that they needed a male lead. I applied for the job and I was the male lead and sound man at the show. And I did male parts in the show and the productions and everything. And um, then we did a thing called Turnabouts. And I portrayed Roxanne, the Latin lovely Roxanne. And went over fabulous. And so they started letting me do it once a week. And then people started begging for me. And so they let me start doing two nights a week. But I still had to do the male part. So I'd pull my hair off, put on men's clothes, run out and do the male part. Come on, put a drag on put the music on, run up and do the number. And it was just, it, that was the beginning of Charlie Brown. I was taught the sound part of it, the productions of it. And uh, at, during that period, Carol Burnett's show was running as Stomach Turns. Do you remember those comedy? I do. Well, we had a gay music man in Atlanta, in Nashville that had a record shop. And he would tape the shows and get us a tape of it. And we, was, we started doing all those funny productions. So, in our show, we were, we were groomed to do talent, do comedy. And so, that's the reason I wanted to talk about this, is because those days is what groomed me into being the entertainer I think I am. And I still rely on those lessons I learned that I was taught during that period uh, the day you think you're a star,
0: you'll never be one. And not only do you think you're a star, but thousands and thousands of people who have seen your shows over the decades just fall at your feet. I mean, I have seen you perform for probably close to 40 years um, in different venues over different places. And the crowd always goes crazy when Mr. Charlie Brown enters the room. So you have done an exquisite job of that. Well, the, the fortune teller told me I had an aura about me that
1: scared her. <laughs> but aura, she said it was just super bright. And she said, it's a good one. And so my career blossomed. And it just seemed like every time something happened in my career, something better opened up. Which I had to be. I had to be better. Stronger. Learn more. And just face the fact that Okay, I'm moving into a new club. I'm not the top bitch here. I'm at the bottom, I've got to work my way up. And that's the way I've always done my career, is I've always tried to have the best around
0: me because the best makes me work harder. So before we get to talking a lot about your experience of actually performing at uh, Washer Hat and Coat and what that club was like, let's talk a little bit about the bar itself. Jerry told me yesterday that that bar was 5,000 square feet, which by today's Superbar standards is not monstrous. But putting it in perspective of 1971 in a very Christian-oriented, family-oriented city like Nashville, Tennessee, 5,000 square feet for a gay bar was unheard of. Yeah.
1: Yeah they rid of us. And during that period, uh, we was getting discovered by uh, they were p- the production of Hee Haw. What's <laughs> going on? And so uh, Junior Samples and all of them started coming down and catching our show. And so work got out. And so the city come in and said, if we're going to do drag, we had to have male names. So my original name was Renee Walker. And my nickname was Charlie Brown. So when they said we had to have male names and we had to have Mr. in front of it, I went back to Mr. Charlie Brown. Everybody knew Mr. Charlie Brown anyway. And so everybody else had to change their names into to Mr. And when you walked in the door, the doorman had to tell each and individual, every person that the people on stage are men. And that was the city ordinance they put down on us.
0: Yeah, that was that was common in a lot of cities around the country. Um, It was, you know, some cities were a little more strict than others. But even I think when by the time you got to Atlanta, that was still, you know, there was still some restriction on what drag queens and female impersonators could do in public uh, or on the streets. You know, they a lot of a lot of bars that I've heard of, the performers had to switch back into male street clothes before they could leave the building and be seen walking down the street or driving home.
1: Well, that was very wise in Nashville too, because the rednecks. And uh, so we we would hide or drag going in and hide it
0: coming out. So when you first walked into uh, Watch Your Hat and Coat, what was your impression? What did you think of the bar?
1: Well, it's like one of the first big bars I've ever been in. I mean, that was the largest bar I've been in. The other bars I was in in Greensboro and were real tiny basement bars, you know. And uh, when I was in Myrtle Beach, it was tiny beach bars. And that was the largest bar i ever seen. And it was just packed. And then when the Overture went on and the show started, it was just, oh, my God. Because I'd seen a couple of drag queens in North Carolina and at the beach. But I'd never seen one perform other than in, in a living room. And to see these professionals walk out there and just, I mean, just blow you away. And then they announced that they needed a sound man and a male lead. And so, I was cute.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we have pictures to prove it. Yes. And I had hair, too. (laughs) (laughs) And now the world will know that. So when you walked in there, the bar, like I said, in 1970, opened as a country-western bar for the mainstream public. But by the time you got there... It was a show bar. And it was not just a show bar, but it was the show bar for the area. Uh, I've seen in some of their ads, they even compared themselves to Finocchio's in San Francisco, which was a famous female impersonator bar uh, in California. But they maintained the, the Western vibe, right? It still looked like a Western bar when you went inside. Well, yeah, it wasn't just Western. it's just like a a a dirty bar
1: (laughs) it didn't have all the western stuff on the walls you know it was just it had the long bar and it had the your kitchen tables and long tables and onion chairs oil-based floor and it was just it, it had the atmosphere when that show started it all the atmosphere just raised from
0: it you know And and the people just went crazy. They loved it. Now, Jerry told me that um, when he had that bar, that the entertainers, you know, a lot of people talk today about how much entertainers are paid. And, of course, with um, the advent of of RuPaul and all this, everybody thinks these drag queens get paid like a million dollars a year. But Jerry told me that when he opened that bar, his performers were paid anywhere from $0 a night to $25 a night. $25 was the creme de la creme for the all-star performers in 1971. Was that your experience there? Or is that how you, you remember? I started it? out at
1: $5 a night. <laughs> and I had to do male lead and the sound. Wow. And if I didn't do the male lead, I got cut. So we always had a male lead, you know. And then when I started doing the drag, I didn't get no raise, you know. But you made great tips back then, right? You know, and so that's what you mainly lived on. and And wardrobes were stuffed about just out of Goodwill or someone to make a dress. If you learned how to make a dress, you had it in every color. Uh-huh. The same dress, you know. <laughs> and that's how you started.
0: Yeah, it's come a long way since then. Now, when you first started working there and you were doing um, male lead and doing sound, were you, did you know at that point that this was going to be your future? Did you, once you got up on that stage at, at Watcher Hat I and wanted, coat, did you? I wanted you to be,
1: but I had no rhythm and I had, had problems doing the productions and they kept saying. Still, will never make it. You'll never make it and drag. You know, you'll never make it in drag. And, you know, I'm the one that made it out of all of them. You are. And it's because the want was there. And it, it just seemed like when, it, when that fortune teller told me to go home, my future was there. It seemed like my whole world opened up at that point. And if I left, like I told you, if I left this place, something better come along. And it seems like that's been my whole career.
0: Now, as as long as I've known you, I have never considered you to be a pageant queen. I've never considered you to be one like so many of the people that have come under your wings over the years. Uh, the Amber Richards, the Sable Chanel's, um, the, the Ravens, all these people who entered contests and pageants and won and got titles and crowns. But I learned yesterday that in 1971, no, 72, uh, the owner of Watcher Hat and Coat decided that it was time for a national gay drag pageant. And he created the Miss Gay America pageant in 1972 and hosted the very first Miss Gay America pageant at that very bar. In Nashville, Tennessee. And according to my sources, there was a new drag entertainer whose name was Mr. Charlie Brown, who was the first runner up in the very first national pageant that he ever entered. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Were you surprised? Blown away.
1: Uh I had, well, I had the support of all the other queens with their clothes, their makeup, and they helped me with my hair. I mean, they perfected me like I'd never been perfected before, you know. And they taught me how to walk. And uh, when it cut down to the question and answer, uh, they asked each one of us the same question. If you were stranded on an island, who would you want with you? And they asked me first, and I just, Green made that look, and I said, my mother, she can cook anything. Well, honey, the house just went crazy. Went crazy over me. And that's when I learned comedy. <laughs> on the mic, not on the mic. You know, uh, you just that. And so, it was, it was a thrilling night. Uh, then I went on to the Miss Universe pageant in Pensacola, Florida. And uh, I placed first runner up there, too.
0: Wow. That's pretty impressive for somebody who never made a career of being a pageant girl.
1: Well, I had top professionals behind me. Where These other queens were uh, hometown top queens. Uh, But that's where I had the advantages. I had top professionals behind me.
0: Well, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Jerry Peake told me yesterday... That Because uh, I asked him if he was surprised that you won, being such a new performer in the industry, uh, that you won first runner-up. And he said, I was a little surprised, but he definitely deserved it. He said, unfortunately, he did not win the pageant. Because if he had, there might not be a Miss Gay America pageant today because everybody would have assumed that it was fixed Because a brand new performer from that very bar won the pageant. And he said, so he deserved to be first runner-up. But if he had won, I don't know if the pageant would be here today.
1: And that leads us to Charlie's side of the story. (laughs) Everybody said I won it. In fact. I heard that everybody said I won the pageant. And that's the reason they didn't give it to me. But, you know. I didn't know that for years and years and years later. I was happy first runner up to Miss Gay America, first runner up to Miss Gay Universe. And it was yeah. a scandal in the universe pageant too.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. The first time I ever met Jerry, uh, Charlie introduced me to him and, he, and uh, Charlie
1: told him, uh, uh, yeah, you can find me the real score sheets to Miss Gay America. And he was sitting there scared his drink and he started staring, so fast it started sloshing all over the fucking table. <laughs> 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 he freaked out. <laughs> but you know, it don't matter.
0: It didn't stop me.
1: Yeah, it, it sure, sure did. didn't. Yeah, anyway.
0: So, so after these couple of pageants, you're still working at Watcher Watcher Hat and Coat. Yeah. Did the in 1973? I believe it was the end of '73. There was a suspicious fire in the building and the bar burned. Yep. Were you working there at that time? Yes,
1: I was on stage. Wow. It was in the second floor and the smoke boiled through the ceiling. That's the first time we knew about it. And I was blinded and I could feel my way off the side of the stage to the dressing room and everybody was grabbing their clothes and running. And um, I grabbed my clothes and I the door and smoke blew up in my face. I screamed, I can't see. I can't see. And this guy I'd met that night grabbed me by the hand and led me out. And he he, he basically saved me because I was one of the last ones out of the building. And But everybody got out. We lost a lot of our clothes and everything. A club in Memphis called George's Truck Stop and Drag Bar they invited every one of us to Memphis, Tennessee and they found sponsors that put us up in their houses. They brought us fabric. They brought us wigs. They helped us and we worked there for a month and uh, until we got reestablished on our feet and uh, they had the Delta Queen I think was was it the Delta Queen? I can't remember the name of the he may have still been the cabaret, but and we I moved think back you're right. To, I think it was the Delta Queen. We moved back to the Delta Queen,
0: and uh, I was there for a while. Then I moved on to Atlanta. Yeah, and, and Jerry stuck around. Obviously, he's still living in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, for many years after that, after Delta Queen, he opened up the cabaret down there in Printer's Alley, I think it was, and then moved it to Hay Street and it was a very long running successful show bar in nashville for for decades but you moved on you decided at that point you had done it done nashville you had become the queen of nashville everybody knew who you were and you were drawing your crowds and you decided to venture a little bit south and stumbled across the tiny little southern town of atlanta what was that like
1: well, I was invited down and uh, me and Carrie Dennis, one of the entertainers I was working with in Nashville. And uh, this was during the saloon before the, I'd come back to Nashville to the club. Uh, my first trip was during the saloon days. Uh, that, she got me and her a booking at the Sweet Gumhead. And I told you I was making $5 a night. Well, I went to Atlanta and I was doing you came a long way from St. Louis and the Sweet Gum had a big circular bar right off from the stage and I got on that bar and started walking that bar and kicking drinks off the <laughs> and picking money up off the bar and everything. Well, I got off the stage that night. They offered me a job at $20 a night. Guess what? I went back to Nashville and gave them my notice and um, they, another queen was moving to Atlanta at the same time and uh, we moved in together and uh, it was fabulous that was the sweet gum head and there i was introduced to a whole different world of drag different productions and i mean productions you had to dance but i wasn't in the male lead
0: portion of them. bam <laughs> well you had kind of learned that that concept i think at Watcher uh, watch your hat as well because yeah. From what I've read about the performances there, I was not in Nashville at the time that that bar was open, but I did see what what cabaret was like afterwards. And from what I understand, the shows at Watch Your Hat were, you were required to do different numbers at different times during the night. So you couldn't be a one-hit wonder and do the same song at 10, 11, 30, and 1. You had to if, if a customer were going to stay there for the whole three hours or whatever, they would see you perform multiple numbers. It would be fresh yeah. every show. Yeah. And and there was choreography involved and there was... We did an opening
1: production, a middle comedy, and a closing production.
0: So it was truly entertainment on a grand scale. It was not just this one person comes out in a wig and, and a dress and lip syncs to a song it was it was arranged and choreographed and set up like a proper show you would see in on Broadway or in Vegas. Yeah. We had production costumes
1: and stuff we had to wear. And uh, that's, like I said, that's why I wanted to talk about to watch Hat and Coat Saloon because that was the, the base of my, my career. I was taught comedy. I was taught productions. I was taught hair. I was taught costuming and personality. I was told, smile. And my daddy told me, smile. You're, you keep a smile on your face, you can go around the world. But if you don't, you'll go to the pier and wave goodbye to your friends that are smiling.
0: And so then you moved to Atlanta. And at the time, uh, Sweet Gumhead was billed as the showplace of the South. It was the ultimate drag bar in the entire Southeast. It was a relatively large bar. Um, it had some, what people who have now become uh, legends in the world of drag that performed there over the years. Um, Martin Paget wrote a brilliant book talking about a lot of what went on on stage and behind the scenes at the Sweet Gum Hub. It's it's not just another hole in the wall this is another legendary bar and yeah. here's here's Charlie Brown you know um hillbilly from tennessee not a whole lot of drag experience been on the stage for a year or two and pops into the big city and ends up on the biggest stage in town how did that feel unbelievable
1: and see my see my picture in the magazines and stuff you know not just an ad, but a picture and caption writing about you or something. Uh, going into a restaurant, and they go, "Charlie Brown." You know, it was the gay life was more open here than it was in Tennessee, and you had. I felt like I had would found freedom, and like I told you, I was exposed to a whole new world of drag. I sit back and watch patches before I ever entered Miss uh, Georgia. I entered Miss Atlanta first, wasn't it? Uh, I went Miss Bayou Landing, the bar in Texas, and uh, I went out there, and the night I entered the bar, I had a gigantic headdress on, and pasties, and a bra, and a g-string, and that night, Cleopatra premiered on TV, and they held a show for the owner to watch Cleopatra and when I went in and that crowd parted when I come through that headdress, he called me to his table. He said, Bitch, you were like Cleopatra, Henry. <laughs> he said, you you want a job? I said, Yeah. <laughs> so I was in and out of the sweet gum head, because doors were opening for me, you know, people from other clubs and other towns seeing me. And um it's like I said, everywhere I went, there's more money involved or a better club situation. It's like in my book, I can't even begin to name the clubs that I have worked. I can't name my favorite club because every club I ever worked in my life added to me. It made me a better person, better entertainer.
0: And you made some great connections because in a sweet gumhead, uh, was owned by Frank Powell, and Frank Powell was the bar guru, the gay bar guru of Atlanta. I, I think he must have owned a dozen or more bars uh, around the city, gay bars, from the tiniest little hole in the wall to you know the big show bar like uh, Sweet Gumhead, which, according to Martin Padgett's book, it was named after Frank Powell's hometown which is a tiny little town in Florida that was called Sweet Gumhead, Florida. And he decided to name his bar that because everybody always wonders, where the hell do you get a name like Sweet Gumhead? Well, yeah, there it is. That's what we were told. Frank Frank Powell's hometown. And then you mentioned Bayou Landing. And I think at that time, Bayou Landing was owned by um, Frank Cavan out of uh, Dallas. Yeah, I think so. And he owned a number of bars. He owned, um, there was a Bayou Landing in Atlanta at one time as well. And he owned numerous bars around the Southeast, but mostly in Texas. And his company still has bars in Texas. So you you hooked up with some legendary bar owners there. Oh, yes.
1: Uh, I've worked with Syndicate in places too. The yeah. (laughs) And I mean, you know, well, they don't advertise, but, you know, you learn, you see. But it wasn't a bad group, you know. It wasn't a murdering bunch of people. But they had good bars, and they had good representation. They treated us good. Value uh, landing. when I was there, I was there a couple months, and the Miss Gay America pageant was coming up, and it's going to be held in at Atlanta, Georgia. And I talked them into letting me represent them and go to the pageant. So they sent me to the pageant. They brought me up. And when they did, I had everything with me. I stayed. (laughs) I wanted to come back to Atlanta so bad. And so I got my way back to Atlanta. And I got back into the gumhead after the pageant.
0: Now, when you worked at Gumhead, there were some, as I said, some legendary performers there. Um, People that, some that are still around. John Greenwell is still around, um, who had performed as Rachel Wells. chocolate. Larry Edwards, uh, Larry Edwards is still around. Um, one one performer who um, had a, a drag bar named after in later years uh, was LaVita Allen. She was there. Yeah. What was it like for you to be around these other performers who had, you know, some sort of a history and a background and a, and a following, and you're walking in as a new person from, from Nashville, Tennessee, did they treat you like part of the family or did you feel like you were, you know, less than? How? how well, the, did thing that...
1: about, the thing about the Gumhead was you had like, you had your disco queens that did all the disco numbers. You had your ballet queens, and you had your blues queens, and then you had your... Uh, we all, Every one of them was perfect in their own field. And here I'm walking in, seeing all this. Like I told you, I, I was around the greatest entertainers you want to be around. And so I I couldn't be I, if I couldn't do after one another, I just t- took a little from each and added it into my act. And, but not enough that you could say, oh, that was Liv A. Dallin or that was so and so, you know. But to have all those teachers at that, during that period, entertainers
0: helped each other, especially if you're getting started. Did you have a, um, A mentor or a favorite, you know, best buddy performer from Sweet Gumhead that you hung out with and and learned a lot from? Sweet Gumhead, I had Satan DeVille and Mark Jones. Mark
1: Jones was the choreographer one time at Gumhead. And uh, they called me and Satan and Mark the Rat Pack (laughs) because we were always together.
0: (laughs) After our bars and working benefits and doing everything. Yeah, I interviewed Mark about, I don't know, a month or two ago. And he had some great things to say about you and the, and the sweet gum head. And, you know, both of you are still going strong in Atlanta. Um uh, A lot of things, uh, one thing that a lot of people don't realize, especially if they're younger, if they weren't out in the bar scene in the seventies or eighties, or even the early nineties is that the shows were so different then. you mentioned that Mark was the choreographer, um, for sweet gumhead not only was he the choreographer but he was also a male lead but they um back then the shows were shows these people went out of their way to make it as broadway as possible to have backdrops to have props to have matching costumes to have choreographed you know dance routines to have three more than one male and more than one male and more than one male and there were a number of them throughout Atlanta over the decades that uh, that performed in in all the bars. Back then, it was a big deal. It wasn't one person getting on stage and twirling around, you know, um, moving their lips for three and a half well, minutes. You
1: start when I started in Nashville, that was the production. Then I moved to Sweet Gumhead. Head. That was Las Vegas the costuming for the productions. And I mean productions. We had hours of rehearsals. And we'd go, Mark, how do you expect us to do that step in high heels? <laughs> Learn. <laughs> you know? You rehearsed in high heels. You rehearsed in high heels. And when you said rehearsals. You were there on time. And I mean, we were. We, were, we did productions. My production... They Mark Jones choreographed The Rose. A night of Bette Midler. I was on stage for an hour and fifteen minutes, first show, without walking off. And an hour of the second show. I had a bass costume and the whole show was me doing Bette Midler in different productions. I'd do a solo and then they come out into another they'd come and dress me. And go right into another production, right there in front of the audience. It was unbelievable. And that was like a Broadway show. And we had to do it again because it's so it was such demand for it.
0: Yeah, and the thing too is, you know, some of the today's queens that go out there, they work, you know, two gigs a month at some random bar somewhere. But the girls that worked at Sweet Gumhead, um, it was a full time job. I mean, oh, yeah. like you said, you had, you know, five, six, seven nights a week of shows. You had four or five days a week of, you know, multiple hour rehearsals. You had all this stuff to do. It wasn't just let me get out there and do the same song I've done for eight years. And then go home and work on your costumes and hair. Yeah. It was it was a big deal. And and I remember when I first moved to Atlanta. Um The first time I was in Atlanta, I thought, this is amazing. Uh, The community was so strong and so open. I mean, there obviously were neighborhoods that you didn't go walking down the street holding hands. But a lot of the parts of Midtown and Buckhead, uh, you could be pretty open. You could go in there with a group of five or six effeminate men and have lunch, and nobody threw anything at you. Um, The bars were generally unbothered by a whole lot of of violence and protests and things like that. We had, we kind of had our own space, but the drag queens were just so, they were idolized in that city. Uh,
1: Fred was working uh, with, he was doing construction, no, installing alarm systems. And he would eat at Silver Grill and he'd come out, you got to eat at Silver Grill. I said, I'm not going down there while they're construction workers and eat. I'm so obvious, no eyebrows, you know, feminine and everything. Well finally he talked me into to walk in. I heard Tiny Brown, but it's about Amber Richards. <laughs> <laughs> there was at least four female impersonators in there out of drag eating. Because strategy workers just no, nobody paid yeah, attention. Yeah. So that was that became a favorite watering hole for me. I remember Silver so
0: we Grill up. well and Peggy. Peggy. she's Good been out our she house. came to her house several times
1: and she set me up for her painters they painted my house when I bought
0: it yeah, she was a character and that whole that's another example of how you know the midtown environment accepted the gay community um, even back in the early 80s or late 70s you know yep. to be able to go in there in a place that was not initially meant to be a gay establishment. Um, I know when I lived in Atlanta, Silver Grill, and several other places, Colonnade, and a number of these restaurants, it was like Mary Mac, Bay or Gray. That was it, Mary Mac, Mary Max, yes, Mary Max Tea Room. Fred got
1: married got married in Mary Max. Oh well, all right, they didn't know it. They didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> we had a we had a group for my seventieth birthday, and uh, it was about thirty of us, and. Uh, Fred Fred wanted to marry me on my birthday, and I said okay, but let's not tell anybody. And so we had Satan Deville, no, no, Bubba Delicious. He was ordained. He was sitting next to me, and so everybody was there. We we uh, had a buffet a room with a buffet for the birthday party, and uh, I stood up and flipped the glass. I said, "Thank you for coming to my birthday. I'm 70 today, but we got a surprise for you." Fred stood up and Bubba stood up. And I said, We're getting married right here, right now. And you, peep,
0: they were crying and it was fabulous. But we got married in Mary Max. Well, it's about time because y'all have been together for like ever since '77. That's a long time. It's been a wonderful long time. I, know, I, I remember when you had your show at Backstreet and Fred was there working with lights and sound up there and you it know, was always close by and uh, always seemed to be part of the inner circle. I know so many performers that their partners don't really get involved in their career or just kind of say, go, go do it. It's just like s- telling them to you know, go to the office or go work at the grocery store. They don't, they're not really involved. But Fred is, it seems like to me anyway, always been pretty involved in your career.
1: He's always been the backbone of my career and, the financial backbone, too. When we had hard times, when I was having hard times, he was working. When I entered pageants, that extra money came in for the pageants. When I did all my benefit works for Christmas for people with AIDS, I took off nights of work to do benefits in places. And uh, he always was my backbone. And he was always the one to say, I'd say I did not think I could do that. He said, Yes, you can. Now get your ass out there and do it.
0: <laughs>
1: and so, to this
0: day, he still pushes me. So after after you had gotten all this fabulous experience, and you, you won Miss Gay Georgia, is that correct?
1: Yes, and the first Empress of Atlanta. All right, then. And I, during that period, uh, I, I was taking over the MC, and my MC is coming real strong and everything. And I could see a career on me MC because nobody liked to MC Nobody wanted on the microphone. And John Austin, the manager of the Gum, he had walked in the dressing room one night. He had just fired Diamond Leo. And I walked in, handed me the microphone, said, you're the new MC." And I said, I've never done it before. He said, you're funny. Get out there and do it. And that was the beginning of it. But I'd done it enough that I was comfortable with it, and I started getting kind of getting bitchy. So that's you know, where the
0: that's where the bitch of the South was born. Yep. was when John yeah, Austin there. handed you a microphone and said, "Go for it." Yep. And uh, I told Fred, I said, "I'm going
1: take. A, I'm not entering no more patches. I'm going to take the title of the bitch of the South." And everybody's being announced. So they said, "Bitch of the South," and I could beat about that that opens me up to be bitchy on the microphone this is 1993 we're all fucking free stand up for who and what you are and be proud of who and what you are don't put down what you don't understand God put us all here on this earth if he wanted us all straight we'd all be We'll then I learned I had a real act of re- picking on straight girls. And I just, the thing about and you can almost say anything as long as you got a smile on your face.
0: Right. And I, I know from the shows that I've seen you perform over the years, you lucked out by connecting with someone who was so different than you, that was, you know, not anywhere like what you were, the the way she dressed, uh, the way he performed, everything was different. But you and Lily White got together and you made such an incredible pair of MCs picking on the crowd and going to opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, you with your charming southern drawl that everybody talks about, and Lily with that kind of grungy, gritty growling. Uh, she growled. That was that was an amazing how did that come about? How did you and Lily end up working together? Well we were opposite MCs.
1: And then At- and then Raven entered the picture, and she was totally opposite of me well, that was way on the road no, that's way on down the road, but Lily and I we worked together fabulously. she was like I said she was totally opposite of me, and I just she just amazed me cause I never been the first time Fred ever saw Lily White, he said, "What the hell is that? <laughs> she was entering the bar with a red and black leopard print outfit ripped up wholly and everything, gigantic hair with a leash over her shoulder. And behind her was a boy dressed in the same outfit with a dog collar on. And Fred looked at it and said, What the hell is that? I said, Fred, that's Lily White. He said, well, don't expect me to do any of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but that was Lily White when she'd in her room, she made a statement, and I learned that from her during the limelight days. We'd go over there on Sunday afternoon, dude. The tea parties. The tea parties. You had the when you walked down them steps, everybody parted for you, you made an entrance. And that's yeah, how you built your name. You made those entrances in clubs.
0: Well, especially with Lily, with that. I mean, I remember Lily looked. I don't know, like, um, like a dominatrix. Like, yeah, you, you were afraid well, was- not to set, step out of the way when Lily was coming down the stairs with those six-inch stilettos and that shredded dress and the and the, the whip or the whatever she was holding in her hand. You just. You didn't know what to expect.
1: Nope, you didn't. And she Thanks. was a
0: fabulous MC. She was, and she was a really sweet person in person. Oh, what well, nicest speaker you ever want to be around.
1: And but most people don't you. have
0: that image in their head because they never get to know her off stage.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So you had this long career going from Nashville to Sweet Gumhead. Into multiple bars around the Southeast, to other bars in Atlanta. You finally landed um, at Backstreet and had the unique distinction of having, first of all, a very large cabaret at the top of the most popular dance bar in all of the Southeast. And 24 hours. And it was open 24 hours. So you could be doing drag shows from 11 o'clock at night till seven o'clock in the morning. We did. And and the room would be crowded and the shows were always high energy. You had some amazing talent come through those doors. But eventually Backstreet closed. And it had a, a long run. It was, what, 30? 30 years um, of yep. Backstreet altogether, and suddenly that was gone, and this the scene started to change in Atlanta. Uh, the nightclub scene, around the time that Backstreet and the Armory disappeared, it, it kind of became a different scene. It's not the scene now. The energy is totally that's when, different.
1: That's when we went to Underground Atlanta. We had Charlie Brown's cabaret in Underground
0: Atlanta. Which was your yeah. s- that was your second solo venture, didn't you have one in Buckhead also? That was before I went to Backstreet. Right.
1: Uh, they wanted me put in a, like a dinner show up there. That was at the old uh, lesbian bar, Talulah. Talulah. Tullu- 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 and was killing them on uh, business, and uh, because uh, they couldn't keep any uh, loyal customers for some reason, and so-, so I was there for about six months, and uh, Bev Cook. Who was the manager of Backstreet at the time? She would she'd come in and have dinner and watch her show, and um, she come in one night and they told her said, "Well, we've g- given Charlie notice," and she said, "Oh, you're kidding." She said, ordered her meal. She come back to the dressing room. She said, "I was sitting back there crying," and she said, "Stop crying. You're going to open up on the top floor of Backstreet," and so we. We practically built that rumor <laughs> sage ourselves, didn't we, Fred? Yeah,
0: I remember yeah. the way it was before. Um, it, there was a waterfall in one corner, wasn't there? Yeah, like a a big giant,
1: And a big uh, grill. They had a barbecue, uh, a brick brick barbecue
0: grill and 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 one of those freestanding nineteen sixties uh, fireplaces. Remember uh-huh. the teardrop shaped things? Well, we
1: we. They Henry wouldn't pay us, so we had to charge admission coming up the steps from outside, and uh, they couldn't enter from the inside. And uh, it got so busy, Henry said, uh, "We're gonna we're gonna put y'all on payroll." <laughs> we want that coin from the door, so you yeah. <laughs> so we got so busy. we got the fireplace out, we got the, the buff the uh, they had. What was it in the middle there, where they cook? Oh, the big grill. The big grill. We got that out. Yeah. Uh, and I said, "Henry, I tore that out with a sledgehammer in the middle of the night one night, and uh got it all down just to the gas pipe coming up out of the floor, and wanted that out. And so I called the uh, gas department and told them I smelled gas, and they were there in about fifteen minutes, and I, you know had Michael, the the on duty manager to slip each guy, you know, some money and uh, they took the pipeline out and it was cool. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I told Which Henry they said you over there on that flower box in front of the fountain and somebody's gonna break a leg. Right. And we can stand I said we can stand forty more people over there. They he took it out in the next week.
0: Yeah, water features and um and drunk people are not really a good combination although as you remember um levita's slash lipsticks had a full olympic-sized swimming pool that was right <laughs> there in the middle of the floor that you could literally dive into uh while you were having a cocktail what uh we would we would close our show
1: one night a week before all of us run and jump in it and have a week tossing and all that that was fun
0: so after all these decades of performing at different bars, having your own uh, cabaret at Backstreet and at a couple of other locations underground and in Buckhead, what keeps you out there now? You're still doing drag. You're still. You went to Lips after that. You had a, a show at Lips for was a number six, of years, said, six years, and you're still doing it. You're still. You're, you have a regular show at the Eagle. Um, I'm going, I'm going back to lips
1: I'm going back to lips on Saturdays for a Sunday a Saturday brunch Wow starting February the eighteenth from two to four
0: so what keeps you going? What is it that keeps you wanting to get out there on stage every day? I
1: enjoy entertaining man uh just I, well now at the eagle it's unreal because most of the people that are coming to see me now are where the young kids at the Eagle when Backstreet was going on. right. So now they're grown, they're married, they own businesses, and they go out to dinner, they catch our show from 9 to 11, dance a little, they're home by midnight. And so, a lot of the people I diapered at Backstreet are coming to see us now to Eagle.
0: I um, I interviewed uh, Richard Ramey a month or two ago as well. Well, He's one of the nicest bar owners I think I've ever worked for. Now He is. He is a great guy. And um, I've seen online, he gets a a fair amount of grief from the old hardcore leather boys saying, I can't believe that you brought drag into a leather bar. But let me tell you, I've been there. I was there opening night during Atlanta Pride. And first of all, that bar is, is big. You have two stories um, you have the outdoor patio, you have plenty of space there. But from my experience, I don't think the leather crowd would support it from five o'clock in the afternoon until four in the morning. I don't see that happening. But you do your shows early. by I drag do at nine
1: o'clock. I do them at nine o'clock and we got a big a packed room. Absolutely. And it's that's, good use that's, of the, the space. The bar is making money. He's it's making excellent. Money excellent use of
0: the space and for performers
1: the show's over
0: before 11 for performers like you who are slightly over 29 years old you don't want to stay out and do a show at 3 in the morning but at 9 o'clock at night you get a good crowd you get to perform and you still get to go home at a reasonable hour yeah I get to catch their nut live (laughs) (laughs) did you ever imagine when you first became part of the Atlanta scene, that you would be doing a regular drag show at the Eagles?
1: No. And I was so blown away when I got the call and um, went to his house and sat down and talked. And, and opening night, it's like I said, opening night, I said, you know, it was about time these two big forces met. The Eagle and Charlie Brown. And now we have Charlie Brown's X-rated Cougars. Uh, I, I don't have nothing against young girls, but the crowd that we have, they want the classic old drag. And this is giving a chance for the older queens in the city that has a hard time getting bookings, even though they're dynamite. It gives, it gives us a chance to work. And see a lot of our fan bases that we never did, get, haven't seen in years.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you don't want to put up with uh, the BS that a lot of the bars want to throw at you. You know, well, we'll pay you $25 a night if you, you know, come in. If you don't bring a crowd, then we're canning you and whatever. You don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. You you Well, it's, it's not
1: really out there anymore. My I ideas. mean if they're bringing you in, they know you're gonna bring your crowd. And it's the problem is it's extremely hard for a young entertainer to get started these days. When we learned, we was learning like I was learning from Rachel Wells, Hot Chocolate, Levita and Satan Deville, uh Bertha Buzz, Latasha Wallace, top names. That's who I was learning from. But today's entertainers that the the pioneers are gone. And a lot of the entertainers today are getting their drag off of internet. Absolutely. They get their look, their hair, their costume, the idea for the number. But the thing that they're not learning is the personality behind it, is how to sell it, to how to just reach out and just pull the audience into you. They're, they're like a r- remote control. They need to be more personal, and that's where where I learned from the old girls that the young girls are not yet the opportunity.
0: Yeah, you you came up in a time when drag was just completely different than it is today. When it was a a team sport, when it was a you know a big production, it was it was legit. Um, I see a lot of performers now that come out that just do. You know, a five-minute version of a TikTok twerking video, and they think that's entertainment, and that they don't have no personality, no personality to it. No, it's just, oh look, I can I can twitch my butt for five minutes and and flap my lips a little bit, and I should get you know, I should get some money for that. But y'all put it out there and did a you great know, I'm job. Not, I'm,
1: not, I'm not putting down these young girls. They got they want to learn it. They can learn it where they can. You know, and RuPaul, RuPaul has opened the door for these entertainers. And one, that one entertainer I worked with at Lips, La La Rie, she's from a small town, dance. Oh, my God, she could dance. Well, she got on RuPaul's show. She's traveling the world now. She said, I'm going to Asia, I'm going to, you know, China i'm going everywhere and that that was the dream she had and now the door's been opened for her for
0: that your history in atlanta predates rupaul um you were you were in atlanta uh in the mid to late 70s and rupaul i don't think showed up until the early 80s um When you first heard about RuPaul in Atlanta, performing at weekends as a kind of male go-go boy on a little plywood box, did you ever imagine that that person was going to go from oblivion to being probably the most widely recognized drag performer on the planet?
1: No, I, I wouldn't think that far. I didn't think that far. But everywhere Fred and I went, there was a, a little paper on the mailbox, on a telephone pole. Anywhere you look, there was a RuPaul at this club tonight, at this club tomorrow Fred said, That bitch knows how to promote herself, don't she? Uh huh. She knew how to promote herself. She did it. She, did. she sat back here in Atlanta, Georgia, and watched some of the best and finest, went to New York, put her version of all of it together in designing RuPaul. She did it. I remember and those she days. The right place. She was at the right place at the right time. When she was discovered. And she's a very sweet person. And very sweet. And that's what uh, helped her. She's a very sweet person. In the, uh,
0: business yeah. I remember Rue from from his Atlanta days and uh, the one thing he did had no shortage of was self confidence. Right. I mean those I remember those posters that you're talking about. And it looked like he wrote them with a a Sharpie and then photocopied them onto some colored paper and stapled them on telephone poles. But he would, even though he held no titles and had no real fame, he would put things on those posters that said, tonight at 2 a.m., the world-famous RuPaul at weekends on Peachtree Street. And there was nothing world-famous about him, except in his head, but it drew the attention of everybody and you know the rest is history that's right yeah
1: he 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 really did it i mean he's opened the door for these entertainers uh the period i grew up in we were taught to look like a, a lady you wanted to look like a woman And then pull that shit off. Southern glam drag. Southern Southern glam drag. The more you look like a woman on stage, the more you made, the more better tips you made. But then they wanted, they wanted to see you out of makeup too. And you were one of the
0: first drag queens I remember ripping off their wig at the end of the show and throwing it on the stage. Um, And what was the line? If you can't, if you can't laugh at a... you cannot laugh at a seven. Well, i
1: get... However old. If you cannot laugh at a 63-year-old fat bald-headed man in dress, you don't have no business in Atlanta, Georgia <laughs> after dark. Yeah. And now it's... Uh, I may look like Memo, but I do you like <laughs> uh,
0: The Southern Roots coming out. So oh, yeah. you can You've been working on a book, on a memoir. You mentioned it early in the um, in the segment. What is the name of your book? Tales of the Bitch. and Charlie Brown and R- Mr. Rich Eldridge. And Richard Eldridge is a great journalist from Atlanta. He's done a lot of really good stories about um, Backstreet and other gay topics, as well as everything else he writes about. But... Um, uh, how are you how far are you going back? Are you going back to the beginning and talking about everything from Nashville all the For way my childhood
1: from my childhood Oh wow I had a very interesting childhood growing up and going into uh, Air Force and uh, I grew up in uh, I was born in Westmoreland Tennessee 70 miles north of Nashville and I went to school in Macon County LaFette High School which is spelled LAF. Not a capital F. So it's pronounced Lafayette. And I've been corrected with that all my life.
0: <laughs> well, there's a, the street in downtown Nashville is also called Lafayette. Yeah. yeah. Everybody wants to say Lafayette. It's yeah. Not. And uh,
1: it was Lafayette, Georgia. And I've noticed they've changed it to Lafayette now. But I had a wonderful childhood. I had a great, great, great mother and daddy gospel. My mother's father was a missionary Baptist, and he uh, traveled all over the northern Tennessee and southern Kentucky, founding missionary churches, and my mother would travel with him in a buggy, and um, when he quit, she took over. She was very religious, and so I had a very religious childhood, but I knew I was different the day I, I could feel anything and remember anything is this ain't for me. Looking around the farm, you know, this ain't for me. <laughs> and the older I got, I kept saying, the day I
0: graduate, I'm gone. And I did. And and you're not going back. Yep. Nope. <laughs> so when should we expect this book to come out? Well, uh, right to get into the
1: pandemics when Rich did a Zoom on the Backstreet uh, reunion, for Atlanta Magazine. And Fred asked Rich, why don't you do Charlie's book? And he said, well, let me think about it. Next morning he calls. He said, all right, next Monday at 11 o'clock, I'm going to call you. And uh, we're going to start at your childhood. And uh, from that point on, he called every Monday through the pandemic. And he's got hundreds of hours of uh, tales. And Stories and it's just—I've had a very fun life. I've had a fabulous life from meeting my husband in a girl's bathroom. And his <laughs> wife introduced us, and her sitting there sucking on joint, talking me and him, and I lock from hell. And we've been together ever since. Just, just like I said, everything in my life—it's like it's. God has opened the door for me,
0: and you still got many more years to go here. We are still I hope
1: and pray I do because I want I want Charlie Brown's Cougars to, to be a new thing. Fred will be joining us soon at the show. We'll be pulling a lot of her some of her special effects and things. So well, we he's
0: don't. not doing drag.
1: No, he will be doing the <laughs> sound. Fred will be doing the sound for a show. You yeah, know. Caddy. <laughs> Fred, Fred produced. Uh, Fred produced Backstreet. He directed us, and uh, he's fixing to take over this
0: one. for I've yeah. got a
1: great, I've got a great cast. I really do. All versatile. I'm bringing in new versatile entertainers.
0: Very good. It's just what we need to keep some of that that old school drag hanging around there. Because, like you said, it's changed. It's a different scene now. And when you hear Charlie Brown's Cougars, what does that say? It's a bunch of
1: old girls. Bunch of old greens.
0: But they're still getting out there and four and five inch heels and dancing around the floor and twirling and and looking pretty. Oh yeah. And bringing back memories to a lot of these guys. Back to the book. Uh,
1: Briefly, uh, the uh, Atlanta Magazine uh, in October, their uh, Pride issue uh, had an article which uh, uh, did excerpts chapter. from uh, the, first Charlie's, cha- the first chapter of Charlie's book. Rich says that uh, the first chapter, and last chapter is done. He said, We've built a house. He is taking what do they call it when you take off for a month or something? Height sabbatical. sabbatical. He's bet, taking yeah. January sabbatical. We're going to try to finish the book. you said the house is built we're going in and decorate the rooms now
0: yeah and we need more of that because you know the last several years i've been working on trying to record all this history about the gay bars which were kind of brushed under the carpet everybody talked about the activists and the politicians and the and the raids and all this stuff and everybody forgot about the bars which is what built our community and so that's why i wanted to do this project and talk to so many people about the bars they remember and and preserve those memories for, for the future. And I'm glad. It's a,
1: it's a, you said we had to fight our way into drag, had to fight our way in. Mm-hmm. In Nashville right now, they're trying to outlaw drag in the state of Tennessee. In Florida and Texas. They're trying to make it a federal offense to cross-dress and perform. Yeah, and it, and it will be here. You know our governor.
0: Hopefully that won't happen, but I I know but I live in Florida in now, community. and I know I know it's true. The Greg
1: Queens opened up. The Greg Queens one that started to protest and everything. Yeah. Now we're gonna need our gay community to get behind us again.
0: We are, and hopefully we'll we'll get them together. They'll see, you know, these stories developing. They'll communicate online and meet up together and make some things happen. So. We can just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. I
1: want to thank you. I've enjoyed this. I hope you I opened your eyes to a few things.
0: Oh, you in have career. indeed. And I, I'm particularly glad that we got to talk about uh, Watch Your Hat and Coat and Sweet Gumhead because those are two bars that have not been covered extensively uh, in the interviews that I've done. And um, I'm glad to see that you're still going. And I'm looking forward to that book coming out whenever you and Richard... Get around to it. It's called Tales from the Bitch. Tales of the Bitch. Of the Bitch. Tales of, of the, the bitch. bitch. We will keep our eye out for that. And as soon as you have it uh, coming out, make sure somebody lets me know and I'll post it to our Facebook group and everywhere else that so people know. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. You. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you to the ghost of Mr. Fred Wise, who's hiding in the background, <laughs> for filling us in with some of those details. Thank you, Fred. For thank you for... For being on
1: here and, and uh, thinking about us. We're, we're real happy to be here. And this. This
0: I'll, I'll see you next time I'm in Atlanta. All Thank right. you. Let me know when you're coming. You got a front row table. All right. That concludes another episode of the Gabe Archives show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit GabeArchives.com.